Warning, the following presentation is rated R for Reformed. All theological content will be accompanied by the five solas, strong and explicit Calvinistic language, persuasive argumentation, and repeated references to sovereignty. This episode may be dangerous for your Arminian friends and family. You have been warned. Alrighty then. Well, I'm not sure what uh, what that was all about. How'd that get in there? Um, well, uh, I am your host, uh, Jason Mullet, and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can find us on YouTube. You can just search for Logical Belief. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, just search for Logical Belief. You can find us there. Uh, both the audio and video can be found at our website. Just click on the top menu there to the far right. Just click on podcast, and you can find both the audio and video there. Uh, you can also uh, drop me a uh, email if you have a question or if you just have a word of encouragement. Uh, you can send that to Jason at logicalbelief.org. Well, as uh, the uh, uh, warning uh, seemed to imply at the beginning of this episode, we are going to be discussing uh, Reformed theology in this particular episode. I, I promised uh, in the last, the end of the last episode, that uh, we're going to be having a series um, on uh, what we know as the doctrines of grace. Uh, of God's uh, sovereignty and salvation, that God, by his grace, saves undeserving sinners. And so we are going to be going over these topics. So on the docket for today, uh, what we're going to discuss is we're going to discuss the sovereignty of God. So we will be going through um, what is known as the as, as TULIP, or the Doctrines of Grace. We will be going through those. But before we go there, uh, we need to establish, uh, in my opinion, we need to establish what the Bible says about God, His sovereignty, His creative decree, um, his, his prescriptive will, and discuss some of these particular issues uh, before uh, we delve into uh, the, uh, the five doctrines themselves. So uh, before uh, we jump into it, uh, last week I had noted that uh, Wojciech had posted an article on uh, entitled on the website uh, entitled, uh, Are You a Roman Catholic? And uh, you can find that article there. It's a great resource to use for your Roman Catholic uh, friends and family. Um, I also posted an article uh, just uh, back on the 25th of September entitled, uh, Is Calvinism Biblical? And so the the article itself is not... Its intention is not necessarily to be a thorough uh, argument uh, for the scriptural uh, basis of it. It's just it's basically just to lay out the scripture. So you can go look for yourself and to give a brief history of what Calvinism is, and uh, so that uh, you can do the research, you can study the scriptures yourself, and I would encourage all of you to do so. Uh, so if you're not familiar with those terms, if you're not familiar with some of these theological points, uh, go ahead and uh, read the article and, uh, and also make sure to go through the scripture. And uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. If you listen to this whole series, uh, you should have a pretty good basis of what uh, what the the term Arminian, Calvinism, Monergism, Synergism, what what these different terms um, actually mean, and uh, where uh, they come from. So, 
So uh, my plan, yeah, for this series is to start off with the sovereignty of God, and then we will go through the uh, uh, five uh, points, uh, as they're known, of Calvinism. And uh, then I also want to, uh, in the last episode, because this is often an accusation against those that hold to the doctrines of grace, is that these are inventions of uh, the French theologian John Calvin in Geneva, and that's where they come from, and they don't historically come um, from the Christian uh, faith uh, throughout history. And that is is really just uh, patently false for anyone who has done any study of history whatsoever. Uh, this was a this exact same discussion, monergism versus synergism, and I'll describe those terms here in a little bit. But uh, this was a major discussion even in the early church in the time of Augustine. Um, and if you want a great resource uh, for uh, what uh, historically the Christian church has taught about this particular topic throughout the history of the church, you can find um, a great resource for that in a book by Steve Lawson, pulled out he's got a series um, the first one is called uh, foundations of grace and this one here goes through the um, the biblical uh, beginning in in Genesis beginning with Moses and all the way to the time of Paul goes through the the biblical uh, authors and those who stood on God's sovereignty in salvation uh, throughout all of Scripture. So this is a great resource, but if you want to see historically uh, who have held to God's sovereign grace and salvation, this is a great book called Pillars of Grace. It starts in the early church, starts with uh, uh, Clement of... Uh, Rome, goes to Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Athanasius, Basil of Caesarea, uh, Gregory, Ambrose of Milan, Augustine, obviously, a huge champion for um, monergistic uh, salvation. So, great resource. I would highly recommend that. If you want to do more uh, uh, reading and discussion on that particular topic when it comes to the history of the Christian faith. So um, I want to describe these two terms that I've been using, monergism versus synergism, and that's really what this discussion boils down to. Uh, personally, I don't like uh, the term necessarily Calvinism. Um, were John Calvin himself alive today, and we're you know we're aware that that uh, his name is being used as the term to describe those who believe um, in God's uh, sovereign uh, election, God's sovereignty in the act of salvation. Uh, he would not be happy about that. So. I do use that term um, simply because that has a theological meaning and it describes my personal position and uh, it does differentiate. So uh, that is the only reason I use it and most of the time I'll simply refer it to as the doctrines of grace. So the two terms monergism and synergism. Monergism is the belief, the theological a belief that that there is one force uh, that brings about salvation and regeneration. One force. It is uh, a work of God alone. Um, in uh, John 6, uh, Jesus says, I think it's John six twenty nine. it says that Jesus says, it is the work of God that you believe. Um, so, uh, 
monergism is that it is it is a, is a work of one force, one will that brings about salvation in an individual. Synergism, on the other hand, is the belief that there are two wills that need to cooperate with one another to bring about salvation. We have the will of God and we have the will of man, and they both need to cooperate in order to bring about salvation in the heart of an individual. So that is really uh, the two terms that describe uh, uh, the two categories in which we will be discussing. Uh, the one thing I do also uh, want to be clear before anyone <laughs> accuses me is that um, my position is not that uh, Arminians are not Christians. In fact, I believe many Arminians are Christians, and there are, uh, I personally know many that are, uh, I would say, much more mature in the faith than I personally am. So uh, I do believe that there are many Arminians who are Christians. However, I do want to put in a caveat in there that I do not believe that a consistent Arminian, and as we go through this discussion, you'll see what I mean by that, but I do not believe a consistent Arminian is a Christian. Uh, only those uh, Christians are those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Now, my contention would be is that only a monergist or a sinner, uh, only a monergist or a Calvinist uh, can actually consistently trust in Christ alone uh, for their salvation. However, I do recognize that there are uh, many Arminians who are simply Arminians of tradition. Uh, I believe that. Man is naturally has a inclination towards Arminianism due to our fallen nature. So as Charles Spurgeon said, uh, we are all born Arminians. It's the word of God that changes us into Calvinists. Um, and so even in my own experience uh, of becoming a Christian, God saving me, regenerating my heart and bringing me to salvation and faith, uh, Coming to the belief that God is sovereign in salvation and to a monergistic position was something that I grew into. It was not something that happened at the moment of my conversion. So I, I do not believe that uh, Arminians cannot be Christians. So I just want to make sure that that disclaimer is clear at the beginning. However, Arminianism is a dangerous teaching. Um, it was even condemned as a heresy um, at the Synod of Dort, and I would agree with that. And I do not believe that a consistent Arminian, one who actually believes that his salvation is because he is more humble, he is more spiritually insightful and more intellectual, or, or whatever his reasons are, uh, he believes his salvation is because of that. And he also, and, and I think one of the most dangerous is, um, and you don't find a lot of Arminians today that would hold to the uh, consistent Arminian position, but that salvation is also dependent upon my continual and our continual uh, perseverance uh, coming from ourselves in the faith. Um, uh, our continued, you know, we have to have at least a certain amount of works in order for us to remain saved. And if we don't reach a certain level and, and different uh, flavors of consistent Arminianism have different conditions, uh, they would all give different ones, but uh, different conditions by which you can lose your salvation. So uh, that would be um, my caveat and where I would have a deep concern for somebody that believes that their own humility is the reason for their salvation and their continued works and actions are the reason for their continuation of remaining saved. So um, anyone who uh, sincerely believes that and is not trusting in the finished work of Christ, 
um, is is not a Christian, unfortunately. So that is why uh, we do have these discussions, because we want to go into what does Scripture say, uh, first of all, to glorify God, and then also, secondly, uh, to bring people to the pure truth of the gospel uh, itself. Uh, and uh, frankly, I, I love it when I see Arminians come to uh, believing in the doctrines of grace, and I've had the privilege um, of of helping people uh, come to understand that. So that has been uh, a tremendous blessing that God has has uh, has given me. So uh, so in continuing with that, uh, what we want to do in this discussion as we go through what uh, what Scripture says about God and His sovereignty, about His creation, creative decree, um, as we discuss these things. Uh, we want to stay somewhat out of the realm of philosophical um, meanderings. <laughs> we want to stay mostly focused in what does Scripture say? Uh, what does Scripture say about uh, this topic uh, and about God's sovereignty? So uh, one thing that I also uh, want to bring up um, at the beginning is that for every one of you guys out there that are Arminians, a question that you have to ask yourself is most of your objections to God's sovereignty and salvation are objections which would apply to your own position. Uh, and most Arminians simply have not adequately uh, thought through some of these issues. And unfortunately, out there, consistency in what we believe and what we proclaim is not, un uh, just unfortunately, not the priority of many uh, Christians today. But, uh, so, most Arminians don't recognize, as they make objections to God being sovereign, uh, and, you know, I I've, I've gotten the objection many times while... Did God simply create people to die? Did God simply create people to go to hell? Well, here's the thing. If you're an Arminian and you're not an open theist, I'll describe what that is here in a little bit, but if you're an Arminian, you actually have the same problem because you believe that God has exhaustive and complete foreknowledge of all things. So that means that God knows John Brown um, he exhaustively knows that John Brown will never come to him in repentance and faith, but he creates John Brown anyway. He creates him, and then John Brown goes to hell. So the Arminian actually has the exact same problem. He, he simply doesn't recognize it always because he hasn't adequately thought about these particular issues. So, um, so, Unless you're an open theist, and now an open theist is a completely heretical position. Uh, I do not believe if somebody is an open theist that they are a Christian. Um, a true Christian might briefly entertain open theism, but I don't, I don't believe that uh, any open theist is a Christian, the same way as I don't believe that anyone who denies the triune nature of God is a Christian. So an open theist would hold to the position that God simply doesn't know the future. Um, you know, he created... And uh, whoops! Oh, looks like Adam and Eve sinned. Now, now, what do I do? Oh well, uh, let me see if maybe in the future somehow I can try to save them from their sins. Uh, scripture just refutes this. Uh, in Revelation, it says that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth, um, before the foundation of the world. So, uh, God from eternity past. His purpose was to redeem a particular people, sinful people, those who uh, did not desire uh, from their own nature uh, to come to him in repentance and faith. And he determined that he would save some of these rebels and give them a new heart and cause them, as Scripture says, as it says in Deuteronomy, he will circumcise their hearts and cause them to walk in his statutes and in his ways. So... 
So this was the eternal purpose of God. Now, um, in our an Arminian has to hold to the same position. He believes that God has exhaustive foreknowledge. Now, the Arminian still hasn't adequately thought about this. He hasn't, uh, uh, you know, you can ask an Arminian and say, so, so how did God come to have this foreknowledge? And they will always have to beg the question, which is a circular argument. They will have to say, well, God is... Uh, God has foreknowledge because he is omniscient, okay? Well, that's begging the question. That's a circular argument. All they said is uh, God has foreknowledge because he has foreknowledge. That I mean, that's what omniscience is. So uh, God knows this because he knows this, okay? That's not a reason. Uh, that's a circular argument, but that's really all they have. Um, as a monergist, as one, uh, I believe the Bible tells us that God declares the end or the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. Uh, he declares all things. He created all things, including all of time and all events in time. Um, uh, so I believe that God knows the future because he determined the future. And so I, I do have a reason. I can actually give a reason for why God actually does have foreknowledge. Uh, and that is because he actually determined what would come to pass. Therefore, he does have foreknowledge. So um, so that's just some groundwork here, uh, for some things for you to think about, and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll delve into this. Uh, the one thing also I want to discuss uh, as we go through this, because I'll be using these terms as we go through, and I just want to make sure that uh, you are familiar with what I'm talking about and you understand what I'm saying when I say these things. So I believe that Scripture teaches that God had, has a has one will, and we see this will uh, played out in Scripture. We see his uh, creative decree, his creative will, sometimes known as sometimes known as his secret decree, or his uh, hidden decree, or his hidden will or secret will, and this is the creative act by which he brings to pass all that he desires from his own volition. Um, it's, it's, what, it's, the, uh, it's the act of creation itself. It pleases God, and, it, and he desires to save some men and judge others who by their own desires and wills oppose his revealed will, his prescriptive will. And this is the other will that I want to talk about. Uh, the, the other aspect of God's will. This one is not based upon his volition or for uh, based upon uh, what is his desire that would occur in time, but this is his will that he has revealed, which is what men ought to do. Uh, and this is what we call his prescriptive or his revealed will. It's the commands that he gives us as man. It's man's duty to God is his prescriptive will, and it's what man ought to do. Unfortunately, many um, Arminians confuse these two aspects. Uh, they do not recognize that God has his um, secret will, which we only see once um, as, as we progress through time. We see his decreed will being laid out, what he has purposed to happen. What God has determined and purposed to happen uh, does not always conform to what he reveals as what men ought to do and what uh, what God has commanded men to do. In fact, if we look at Acts chapter 4, and, uh, and we can see, for example, in God's prescriptive will in the Ten Commandments, God gives man commands of what they ought to do, we see that it says in the, uh, let me see which commandment is it, uh, the sixth commandment, it says, thou shalt not murder. So it's God's prescriptive will for man. What they ought to do is they ought not murder. However, we see that his eternal creative decree involved a murder. And we can look at it in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. It says, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatsoever 
your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we can see here by the eternal plan and hand of God, God predestined the murder of the perfect Son of God to take place from all eternity past. So does that go against what God's prescriptive will is for man? Is it a sin to murder someone? Absolutely. It's against God's uh, revealed will for us. Um, however, his decreed uh, will brings about actions that men desire from their nat nature to do, which violates what God has prescribed that they ought to do. So I just want to be clear um, on that particular topic. So as I, as I continue using uh, these terms that uh, you will uh, know what I'm talking about. So let's go into what Scripture says about God's um, creative act, about um, his purpose and his desires uh, being accomplished. We see in uh, Psalm 148, verses 5 and 6, it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. So this here verse is the creative decree of God by which, about, by which he brings about all things that come to pass uh, in time. And it shall not pass away. Everything that he decrees to happen will happen. This is his creative decree. We can see that God has um, ordained and determined uh, uh, nature itself. And we can see, for example, in Job 28, verse 26, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. He saw it, declared it, he established it, and searched it out. Um, and then it says in verse 28, I wasn't even planning on reading this, but this is a great, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and turn away from evil is understanding. So we see that God created nature in such a way so that we can, and this is Romans 1, so that we can see his creative act, we can see his eternal attributes uh, and divine nature, his eternal power. Uh, that's all Romans chapter 1. Uh, we also see that it is um, <clears throat> the Lord that that makes man. Uh, in Exodus 4.11, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So we see for all those things that we as humans go through and we struggle through in this life, we can see that uh, that God is sovereign over these things. When we get sick, God is sovereign over that. Uh, but as Christians, we have the assurance from Romans 8.28 that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we can see that as we as Christians go through things, that God has a purpose for these things, um, and he ultimately has a good ends, which he is bringing us to with all of these things. So we can rest in God. We can have comfort in God that he is in control, that nothing happens that is not outside of his ordination, and that uh, we can trust in him, that we just need to trust in him, that he is, he is taking care of it. Um, we can also see God's prescriptive decree, his prescriptive will uh, in Romans 1, verse 32. Uh, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so uh, in just the previous verses, it talked about uh, people being filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, disobedient to parents, inventors of evil, haters of God. 
and it says that all men know God's righteous decree that those who practice them uh, such things deserve to die. So we see here God's prescriptive decree that all men know. Um, However, has God determined in time that these types of things happen, that envy happens, for example? We see in Genesis chapter 50, um, uh, well, well, actually we see in the book of Genesis, we'll talk about Genesis 50 here in a little bit, but we see in the book of Genesis that God used the envy of Joseph's brothers for him to bring about his purposes, uh, envy that came from their hearts. And uh, it says in Genesis 50 that what they had determined for evil, God had determined for good. Um, And so that gets into what we call compatibilism, and I'm a compatibilist when it comes to free will, and um, we'll discuss that uh, more towards the end of today's show. So let's keep going here. We also see in Ezra chapter 7, verse 23, we see this is actually uh, the King Artaxerxes, who's actually given this, uh, um, is writing a decree for the uh, the temple uh, to be rebuilt and be reestablished. And he says in verse 23, it says, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So here we see, that God has a prescriptive decree by which men, how men ought uh, to um, uh, work in the house of God and how they ought to uh, establish the house of God. And he, and he says that, that, uh, that men should do this, uh, this decree of God, or else God's wrath would come upon them. So here, once again, we see God's prescriptive decree um, laid out in Scripture. Uh, the next thing uh, that I want to look at is that whatever God purposes uh, to happen uh, does happen. And it says in um, Isaiah 46, uh, beginning at verse uh, 9, I just love this passage of Scripture. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So, according to God himself, speaking here through the prophet Isaiah, is that he accomplishes everything that he purposes, and he has declared the end from the beginning. Now, if your position about God is that God purposes and desires and wants to do something, but he can't do it unless man allows him or lets him, then you're not talking about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible actually accomplishes everything that he purposes and desires to do. So that is something that, unfortunately, um, many of my Arminian friends have not reflected adequately upon. Uh, God will accomplish everything that he purposes to accomplish. Uh, We can see in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, it says, See now that, that I, even I am he. There is no God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. So we see that God is sovereign um, over death, over healing, over sickness, over wounds. None can deliver out of the hand of God. God is in control of all these things, and no human being can stay his hand. In Daniel chapter 4, this is after uh, Nebuchadnezzar had been restored to his sanity by God. And uh, I believe that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Praise the Lord. And... uh, 
uh, and, and mostly based upon what Nebuchadnezzar himself actually says in this text. So it says, um, in beginning at verse 34 in Daniel chapter 4, it says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my head, or lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. This is after he had for seven years uh, been running around like a wild man um, in the... Uh, in the fields of grass, it says, uh, and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we can see here that God can do as he wills among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand. When God wills to save someone, he does save them because he accomplishes all that he purposes to do. Um, it says down further in verse 37 also, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so all of us that have been saved by the grace of God, we recognize that despite our pride, despite our arrogance, and despite our loving ourselves more than loving God, God himself was the one who humbled us because to come to salvation because there's no way that I and myself was ever humble enough to be saved. That's just not possible. Uh, my heart has way too much arrogance and pride in order to ever have been humbled enough to be saved. So I, I find it when people say, well, well, you know, I, I humbled myself and I was humble enough. And so that's why God saved me. I, I just, I, I don't understand that because um, I, I just fail to understand that because I, I, I'm definitely, myself, am definitely not humble enough, even as a Christian, to, uh, to actually be saved. Um, God has to graciously save me. In um, Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse 4, it says here, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So God is sovereign in the creation of the reprobate, the one who never comes to faith in Christ and faith in God. God has a purpose for his life, and that is to demonstrate his justice. And um, in Proverbs 16, verse 9 it says, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. We also see in verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it is every decision, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So God is sovereign over dice, sovereign over everything. God is in control. Praise him. Um, in Jude 1 verse 4. It says, um, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we see uh, in Psalm uh, 115, verse 3, our God is in the heaven. He does as he does all he pleases. Uh, now, some people say, well, that's just in heaven. He can he can he can only do what he wants in heaven. You know, his will is, you know, Jesus in his uh, uh, when he taught us how to pray. Um, uh, Our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, so so his will is being done in heaven, but it's not being done on earth. OK. Well, let's go to Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So, pretty sure God does as he pleases wherever. Uh, God can accomplish all he purposes, uh, both on heaven and on earth. 
he does what he pleases among the children of men, and who can stay his hand? Uh, we see in Proverbs 19, verse 21, it says, Many are the plans. Uh, actually, Proverbs 19, verse 21, not verse 1. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In Proverbs 21, verse 1, it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So, as we can see from these scriptures, that God overwhelmingly has sovereignty over creation, over history, and even over the will of man. Uh, God accomplishes what he purposes. He accomplishes all that he pleases to accomplish. And so, I, my prayer is for those of you out there that, that are not monergists, who do not believe that God is sovereign in uh, the act of salvation, that you would adequately think about this and think about the fact that Scripture is clear that God accomplishes all that he pleases. And if your theology does not involve a God who can accomplish all that he pleases and purposes to do, then you don't have a biblical theology. Uh, you have a theology of a God who tries, who wants, um, but uh, he can't unless man allows him. Uh, we then have man being the one who determines the course of history and not God, because God cannot overcome the mighty will of man. Um, that is just not the God of the Bible. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about here is uh, uh, is compatibilism. Um, I do not hold, obviously, to a, a form of what's called libertarian uh, free will. Um, I hold to a compatibilistic uh, form of free will. I want to go ahead and uh, read something here that I wrote um, on my website in the um, document that I wrote, Is Calvinism Biblical? And so this kind of touches on this subject here, and so I just want to go ahead um, and read it here. It says that uh, upon close examination, most of the scriptures that are used to oppose God's sovereignty and salvation are being interpreted with the assumption of free will and are either committing the logical fallacies of begging the question or affirming the consequent. We always need to define our terms in a discussion, and if the assumed free will, which is being used to interpret Scripture, means that we are not slaves to sin, uh, not dead spiritually, and able to do that which pleases God, that we are assuming a position about the will of man that the Bible rejects. And that's what we refer to as libertarian free will. Um, if the free will means that we equally have the ability to do that which is good and evil, then we are once again assuming a definition of free will that even God himself does not have and is not biblical. If our definition of free will is that we make free choices that are consistent with our nature, now we have a definition that works biblically and is consistent with God's free will. So, libertarian free will means that in every situation uh, that I encounter, that I have the ability to equally choose that which is good and that which is evil. That's libertarian free will. Uh, and I would define good... Um, as that which is pleasing to God. And um, so, so libertarian free will would say that that's, that's what we have the ability to do. I'm a compatibilist. I don't hold to libertarian free will. So unfortunately, what many Arminians do is they simply assume, um, without validating with Scripture, their, uh, their assumption that libertarian free will is true. However, they haven't adequately reflected on this because libertarian free will is only even valid within an open theistic worldview. Uh, the Arminian view, which God has exhaustive foreknowledge, the question would be is, can you determine to do that which God has foreknowledge of you 
uh, not doing. So can you do what God, uh, other than what God has foreknowledge of you actually doing? So um, exhaustive foreknowledge uh, eliminates uh, really libertarian free will even in itself. Uh, but as a compatibilist, I believe that we make free choices. Uh, I think we freely choose that which we do. Uh, I believe that God's uh, sovereign determinism is compatible with man's ability to freely choose that which God determines. And so we choose based upon our nature. Our nature is that we are fallen, that we are slaves to sin, that we cannot do that which is pleasing to God. We are by nature children of wrath. We're born in sin, Psalm 51. And uh, we cannot do that which is pleasing to God, Romans 8.8. 8. So we don't have those abilities. We cannot. Scripture has, and we will go through these in the section on total depravity or total inability, but Scripture is full of texts that says that we cannot there's many cannots in Scripture. Uh, Romans 8.8, 8, just a classic example. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if your position uh, is on the will of man, that man has the ability to do that which is pleasing to God in his fallen state, then you don't have a biblical anthropology either. Uh, you don't have a biblical theology, and you don't have a biblical anthropology. Uh, so... Um, so unfortunately, just many people have not adequately, uh, thought about these things, but compatibilism would say that, um, while God determines all things, man, uh, making choices, uh, freely is compatible with this. And he makes choices based upon his nature, uh, what he is, um, what he is able by his nature to do and only that which he can do by his nature. So, um, unfortunately, a lot of times uh, Calvinism is mischaracterized to represent that there's people out there that just want to be saved. They desire to be saved. They desire to have a relationship with God, but God's going, no, no, I, I, I don't want to have a relationship with you, and he doesn't um, enable them to come to him. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that man does make choices uh, in reference to God, but he always opposes God. And he has no desire to come to God unless God himself takes out his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. So, and uh, let's let's jump back to compatibilism, kind of ran down a rabbit trail there. But uh, in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 50, verse 20, and I already quoted this earlier, but as uh, Jesus is speaking to his brothers here after his father Jacob had died because his brothers were worried that because of what they had done to him in the past, that he would now uh, take out vengeance upon them. And so he tells them in Isaiah, or not Isaiah, but Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so here we see that in the one act, the same action of selling Joseph into slavery, we had the brothers' hearts intending it for evil, but God's intention in the same action was for good. And so my belief as a compatibilist is that every event in time that involves the will of man, uh, man's will is involved with an evil intention from his own desires, from his own heart, um, which is by nature enslaved to sin, and God has an intention in that act and a purpose in that act, which is he has his good reasons for bringing about what he brings about, and they're always for good. Um, they conform to the nature of God, which the nature of God itself is the measure of what is good. We also see in Isaiah chapter 10 a classic example of compatibilism. We see here that the Assyrian king is the instrument in God's hand by which to bring judgment upon Israel, um, the northern kingdom. But we then see that God then judges the Assyrian king for the evil intention of his heart in doing that which God ordained him to do. Um, 
And let's just read the chapter, Isaiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. It says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So we see here that they're even called the rod of God's anger. Against a godless nation I send him, it's against the children of Israel. Against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend that his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Calno like Karshemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom and and for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. And like a bull, I will bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest, the wealth of people. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, So I have gathered all the people, I've gathered all the earth, and there is none that move a wing or open the mouth or chirp. Um, Shall the axe boast over him who hews it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as a staff should lift him who who is not wood. So what God is saying here is that the Assyrian king here has evil in his heart he thinks he's accomplishing all these things on his own that this all comes from him and God is comparing him to an axe boasting over the one who swings it he's saying that you Assyrian king you're simply an instrument and a tool in my hand but you out of the own arrogance of your heart think that you are accomplishing doing these things all by your own strength um, uh, or gives the example of a saw magnifying itself against the one who wields it or a rod um, uh, speaking up against him who lifts it up we are instruments in God's hands Uh, God uses us as he sees fit and he can do that because he's God he's the creator we're the creature and uh, man does not like that but uh, that is what scripture teaches and for man to come to like that And to love that, that God is in control of his life and God is sovereign over him and his choices. God has to change their heart uh, for man to accept that. And then also the example that I gave before, it says uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, that um, they were gathered against Jesus. Uh, This is also in chapter 2 of Acts, but it says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God holds Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel accountable. In fact, he even brought judgment upon the people of Israel in AD 70 for the murder of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, this is what his hand had predestined to take place. So we see man's responsibility that God holds him to God holds him responsible because he desires um, evil and he has evil intentions out of his own heart to do that which God desires and intends for good and so God can judge man and man is morally accountable uh, and that these two God's sovereignty and man's moral accountability and his responsibility and his free choice are compatible with God's uh, sovereign determinism So uh, that is um, compatibilism. So I want to touch on one more thing. I want to talk about um, uh, one other thing before we end the show today. And we'll talk a little bit about God's uh, attributes. Uh, Many of you guys, uh, I'm sure, know the terms like omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresence that God is everywhere God is all-powerful God is all-knowing he's transcendent um, he is immutable uh, but the one that I want to focus on is God's aseity 
Uh, if you've never heard that term before, what it simply means is that God himself is self-sufficient. He does not depend on anything outside of himself to demonstrate uh uh, his being does not rely on anything outside of himself. Uh, we as human beings are wholly dependent upon God for our existence. We do not have a saity. God himself, though, is non-contingent. His being and his existence is not contingent upon anything outside of himself. And so this is what we call um, God's aseity. And so... The Armenian has not adequately reflected upon uh, this attribute of God, that God uh, is not dependent upon any part of his creation in the demonstration of any of his attributes. And I have an article on this um, on my website if you want to discuss uh, look into this a little bit more and I actually didn't even prepare uh, this so I don't even have the title of it up here but let me see if I can quickly find it um, see if I can let's see here uh, there's one that kind of touches on this called is faith a gift from God uh, that would touch a little bit on God's aseity um, Let's see here if I can find it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, the article that I wrote on this that, that discusses God's non-contingency and his aseity is uh, entitled God's Unconditional Love. Uh, so if you want to check that out, you can go ahead and read that. It's just a short little piece. But um, uh, what um, when, when I talk about aseity, that means that God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. So when God loves, his love, his salvific love, is not dependent upon any actions of his creatures. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what synergism and Arminianism would teach, that, that God cannot extend his salvific love to anyone unless they do uh, a certain amount of uh, particular uh, actions or they do something uh, they do something that merits God actually giving his, uh, his love to them. So what they're saying is that God's love is contingent upon an action of his creature, which is what God's aseity denies. Um, God has aseity. He's not dependent upon anything that his creatures do in the demonstration of his attributes. And so God's love is truly unconditional. It says that... Um, uh, we loved him because he first loved us. And so, if God loves everyone exactly the same, and there are some people who do not love him, and there's other people who do, then the fact that the people who love him love him is then not dependent upon the fact that he first loved them. It's dependent upon, I guess, something within them. Um, and so the Armenian cannot really hold to the verse that says that we love him because he first loved us. Only the Calvinist, only the monergist can say this, that I love God because he extended his love for me, and he did it. He loved me first. Uh, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I love God, and I have love for God because he extended his love to me first. And his love for me is the cause of my love for him. But uh, unless you hold to monergism, you cannot consistently say that. Uh, you can say that God loves everyone equally, but the fact that I love him is something to do with me. Um, because if God's love is the cause of our love, then and if God loves everyone in a salvific way, then all people would love God. So... Uh, that's just some uh, things for you to uh, think about, um, and uh, as we uh, as we go through this discussion. So, thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, next week, we will delve into the topic of total depravity. 
then we'll move on to unconditional election and we'll keep on going from there thanks for joining us through Adam's offense.